This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. This summer, if you're unaware, we're doing a series called Counsel from the Psalms. And our hope is that as we look at God's word, that his word would counsel us. And we'd find counsel for our life. But more than that, we'd also be able to use God's word and specifically the Psalms to counsel one another. So let's look this morning at Psalm 57 and see how in the midst of trials, different circumstances, God's providence counsels us and instructs us. This is God's word to us this morning, Psalm 57. It says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I think the main thing the Lord wants to communicate to us through his word this morning is that we can trust in the Lord's purposes in the midst of trials. We can trust in the Lord's purposes in the midst of our trials. Whether you're suffering this morning from an illness, whether you're in the depths of anxiety or depression, maybe you're experiencing a trial by the hand of another. Regardless of the situation, the Lord tells us through his word. And the counsel we receive this morning is that we can trust him because he has a purpose for us. He sees what's happening and it's not meaningless. And we can put our trust and hope in the Lord. I have three points from the psalm I just want us to look at that we may find counsel and help both for ourselves and for, for others. The first is we have a promise for purpose in trials. Sometimes life doesn't turn out the way we think it should. This is more often the case than not. We plan the future, yet our ways are often thwarted. That's kind of life on this side of Eden. We get stuff, stuck in traffic on our way to an important meeting. We're promised promotions at work only to get passed up by someone else. Even more serious things like death can rob us of a life we planned with someone else. Anxiety or depression can make us stunned in our tracks. Fear can stop us from a task we want to accomplish. 
chronic illness can prohibit us from playing with our kids. I'm sure even David, the author of our psalm, didn't plan out verse 4 when he said he was in the midst of lions. He was unable to even rest because he had to lie down amid fiery beasts. Many wonder in the midst of trials in their life, does God see what's happening? Or even maybe a better question, does God even care about what's happening? Is this fair? But I think what a comfort we have this morning that God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for me. And every good thing we experience and in affliction and trials that come our way, God is providentially planning your ways. It's not all meaningless. It's not a lack of his care for you. And the knowledge that God has a plan for our future, it should help us this morning. It should help how we think about the future. Sometimes his plan is hidden from us. Oftentimes it is. It's not revealed. But regardless, if you can't see his purposes, he has one. And we're called to a greater trust in him this morning. David, the king of Israel, was familiar with plans being thwarted. You'll recall that he was promised the throne. He was promised that he was going to be king of Israel, reigning with servants and armies, with money at his disposal. But if you look at the title of this psalm, plans didn't go how he thought. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mictam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. David was on the run for his life. Bill preached from Psalm 23 a few weeks ago. You'll remember that he was running away from Saul. And instead of reigning on his throne with servants by his side, David was hiding in a cave with a band of misfits by him. You can read all about it in 1 Samuel 22. Yet look at verse 2, what David says. In the midst of his trial, what confidence he has in the Lord. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. David doesn't doubt God's purpose in his life or the promise that he would one day be on the throne. But instead, he sets an example for us this morning by having a steadfast trust in the Lord's purposes for him. I know I'm young and I've not suffered much. I've suffered some. I know many of you and the trials you've gone through, and I know that many have suffered more than me. But I have found in in my own suffering the providence of God to be one of the most comforting doctrines in my trials. Knowing the Lord has a purpose for me, that he's in control of all things, this brings great ease to my soul when it's troubled. Many people, I think, use this as a reason not to follow after God. Often when I'm sharing the gospel with people, I hear from unbelievers, if bad things happen in this world and the Lord is in control, then I don't want to follow after him. My question often in response is, if bad things happen in this world and the Lord isn't in control, does that really want to make you follow him more? That's far less of a comfort. If God was clueless to how things were going to end in my life, if I could even make it through, if he had a plan for my suffering, if my trial was meaningless or if it had a purpose at all, That would give me no reason to trust in God. But instead, reading verse 2, knowing that 
the God David is crying out to is the God Most High. This is who we get to cry out to this morning, that he sees all things, that he knows all things, he rules all things, and this is the God who fulfills his purposes for you. That's a great comfort in the midst of our affliction. Maybe you've heard the word providence before, and you're not really sure what that means. I think to understand God's providence, you need to know that God is sovereign over all things. He reigns and rules over all things. He upholds all things. That's why David in verse 2 calls him God most high. He has the power to do all things. But his providence, his providence is the act of purposefully providing for, or purposefully sustaining, or purposefully governing all things, both big and small. Not only does he uphold the whole world by the word of his mouth, but he's watching and caring for all aspects of creation this morning, even down to the very atom of the seats you're sitting on. Nothing escapes his sight. Listen how John Piper explains the scope of God's providence and all that it reaches in the world. He says, every tiny popping bubble in the foam at the top of a newly poured Coke. Every floating dust mote which you can only see in the early morning bedroom beam of light. Every top of every stalk of grain stretching across the endless Nebraska plains, all of them, with all their slightest movements, are specifically governed by God. Providence, then, is not just wishful thinking. It's not just a fatalist viewpoint about the future, that whatever happens just happens. But instead we know God purposes things everywhere on earth, from the smallest of things to the largest of things, including what you're walking through this morning. Shortly after Ellen and I got married, we saved and saved and saved, and we bought a house that we were so excited about, Within one week of closing on our home, it started raining outside. We quickly realized that our finished basement was not rainproof like many houses come. If you put your house on Zillow, maybe make that a, a feature, rainproof house. But this house was not rainproof. We, this was not told to us before we bought it. Every time it rained, our basement would flood. We began calling in contractors to do work at our house. I remember they told us all the issues with our house, the groundwater coming up, and to fix it, they were going to dig trenches. They would install piping and sump pumps. All in all, this was going to be more money than we put down for a down payment on our first house. I remember we felt sick to our stomachs. We felt stretched financially. When they finally did this job to fix the water issue, it required us to take everything out of the basement, including our stairs, our carpets, our drywall, all of the studs, so they could dig this trench in our concrete foundation. And as we began tearing out studs and insulation, we began talking to neighbors. We soon realized the guy who flipped this house, he sold it to us. He hid these issues so that he could make a buck. With every wall we tore out, we found more and more issues with our house. There was major cracks in our foundation that were covered up from the outside with paint and plaster so the home inspector couldn't see them. As we got behind studs, we realized there was, there was holes in our foundation from floor to ceiling that we could fit our bodies, our arms through. As we called in more contractors to come fix 
our house, our foundation, which was a whole separate issue from our basement flooding, the price of the work soon tripled. In the midst of all this, we are wrestling with, how could someone hide these things? We felt slighted. We felt taken advantage of. We felt sinned against. As we began tearing out our basement, the wet carpet, the drywall, it molded, which I'm highly allergic to. For 12 months we lived there. My immune system was wiped out. I was sick every day. I was at the doctor's on antibiotics multiple times a month. During this season, there was multiple times. I, had a different, I actually found out I had a different allergy. I was throwing up multiple times a month. I was experiencing so much stress from the combination of these things that my body began shutting down. Specifically, I had to go to multiple different doctors to address my back, my bladder, my stomach. It felt like an avalanche of trials at once. Physical, being sinned against, external, financial. I didn't want to go to work or church or meetings because there was an embarrassment from physical limitations. Scriptures like Psalm 57, the doctrine of providence, protected me from error. They counseled me during the season. I was reminded over and over and over again, the only place I could go was God Most High. I cried out with David in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. All I could do was cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Knowing that God governed us to move to that house, that he ordained that our basement would flood, that he knew my physical state and my financial limitations, it comforted me in this season. He knew the storms of destruction would pass by my way. And at the time, I didn't understand. I didn't know the purpose. I didn't know the reasons. I didn't know the answers for why it was happening. But by God's grace, I clung to the promise that there was a purpose from God himself for my life. And it helped sustain me that he had a better plan for my life than I ever could have planned for myself that he would fulfill his purposes for me. When it felt like all other things were being stripped from me, all I could do was to trust in him. I believe this text can change your life. It changed mine. Sometimes his purposes are hidden from us, but don't let that fool you that he has no purpose at all. Romans 8.28 is a promise that we can cling to, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with what is the purpose for me? What's the purpose of my suffering right now? I don't know the exact answer to that. And sometimes God's ways are hidden to us, sometimes for a season or sometimes for our whole life. But I do think that sometimes his purpose in trials is to make you desperate for him. To cry out like David in verse 1, God be merciful to me. Sometimes I think in trials it can be one of the many ways you are being conformed to the image of Christ. Sometimes the Lord's providence 
guards us from something far more dangerous we're not even aware of. Sometimes his purpose in trial may be allowing you to love his word more, recognize that he alone is God. Sometimes trials make us more grateful for God's gifts like health and food and good weather that we can't enjoy when we're suffering. His purpose in your trial could be to give you assurance that he alone is good and nothing else can replace him. I remember at one point a contractor told us it was a good thing we were having so much rain, even though it was flooding our basement. It was almost laughable when he told me this, but it was because our house was sitting on a big bed of clay. And when clay becomes wet, it becomes hard. So if the clay dried out and we went through a drought, it would become brittle and there was serious concern that our foundation would crumble at a more rapid pace. But the wet clay provided a stronger foundation and protection over our home. The very thing that was a trial to us was the very thing protecting us. God has greater things planned than we can ever imagine. We look back now and we're just amazed at God's goodness to us through this season in our life. You may ask, what do we do while we wait? What, what are we supposed to do while we just suffer? Are we supposed to do it quietly? Is that how David responds? David doesn't just say, oh well, well this is my lot in life. I'll wait until his purposes are revealed. Now look at verse 1 and 2. As he waits, he cries out, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. He cries for mercy two times. He, he wants to put an emphasis. He needs the Lord's help in the midst of trial. And then in two different ways, he says, For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. He says twice, I'm going to take refuge in the Lord. I think what he's trying to accomplish is he's trying to get at both his soul is going to take refuge in the Lord and his physical body is going to hide under the wings of the Lord. He isn't holding back any of himself from the Lord protection. He's saying, I trust you, Lord, with my whole life, soul and body. And then once again in verse 2, I cry out to God most high. It's the, the rubber stamp. He's hammering down the point. In affliction, while I wait for God's purposes to be revealed, if you find me, I'm going to be crying out to God most high. That's how I'm going to fill my time. I'm going to cry out to God. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on these verses, he said, when we can't see the sunshine of God's face, it is blessed to cower down beneath the shadow of his wings. Evil will pass away, and the external wings will abide over us till then. When we're under the divine shadow, the passing over of trouble cannot harm us. The hawk flies across the sky, but this is no evil to the chicks when they are safely nestling beneath the hen. David didn't have to worry about the future. He knew he was protected under the Lord's wings as he cried to him. He knew God had a purpose for him and his life, and they would be fulfilled. This morning, the Lord Most High is inviting you to call out to him in prayer, to cry out to him, to cast your burdens on him, to take refuge in him. He hears your prayers. Today, I, I would even say, pray to God and ask that his purposes might be revealed to you. 
And as you wait, you would take refuge in him. I think one point of application as I was even thinking about this series, sometimes people share things with us and we don't know how to give a counseling word. We feel we're just, we're just stuck. We don't know how to say something. We're at a loss of words. I think you can help cast the cares of the person who's sharing with you to the Lord. Cry out the, to the Lord together. And I love seeing this at Cornerstone. I feel like so many Sundays I witness people praying for one another. Even before the meeting this morning, I was out in the lobby and there was, I saw it twice, two people praying for other people. Because we know that there's power in prayer, that God most high hears our prayers. If you ever desire to be prayed for, the pastors sit down front every Sunday and they would love to pray for you. They're always here after the meeting. You can come find them. But as we pray to God and hide in him, we trust in our trials. He has a purpose for us. But what's amazing is as we wait for this purpose to be revealed, you should know that this is my second point. We have hope for deliverance in our trials. I found that hope seems to change everything when you're suffering, even the smallest sliver of hope. You guys may have tuned in this past week over every major news website. There was live updates on the submarine Titan. Maybe you read about it, followed it closely, but it was a five-passenger sub that goes down to the bottom of the ocean to look at the wreckage of the Titanic. It goes down 13,000 feet so that they could see this sub, or I could see this, this, uh, this boat. It takes about two hours to get down to the bottom of the ocean, 2.5 miles underwater. And about an hour and 45 minutes in, the sub Titan lost communications with its mothership. Well, initially this was a worry to some, a, a couple people weren't worried because they said at such depths, it's often normal that you lose communication. So they were waiting for the sub to resurface soon. But after the sub didn't resurface at the time they were supposed to, search efforts increased. Even though many people thought they died, there was still hope that maybe they had enough supplies to withstand a couple days underwater. Maybe they got trapped somewhere in the Titanic. Maybe they made it to the surface somewhere else where they weren't supposed to go, so search parties started hoping in anything. What I found interesting was Tuesday morning, they began using sonar devices so they could detect something or detect noises in the water, and they began detecting banging noises that they thought maybe was people in the sub banging on the side of the submarine that would detect where they are. It gave another glimmer of hope, kind of after Monday when all hope had been lost. Many people who were being interviewed, they just kept saying the same thing. We have to hold out hope. The world longs for something to hope in. And hope changes everything, even in the midst of impossible circumstances. Hope drove more ships to look for Titan, planes to look overhead to see if they'd surface, subs to go underwater into the Titanic's wreckage. Hope made the whole world sit on edge this past week, waiting. But what David is holding out to us in our psalm is we have real hope. We have a sure and steady hope. It's, it's not a maybe. It's not an uncertain thing or wishful thinking like finding a submarine at the bottom of the ocean. This is this is a promise. We have the promise of the living God coming down to save us. Look at, look at verse 3. He says, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. 
God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David was in serious trouble when he wrote this psalm. And he says, in the midst of lions, in the midst of lying down amid these beasts, he's going to trust in the Lord and hope in him. Even David's name, you can see in verse 4, he's losing credibility as future king, as people are, are using their words to tear down his, his kingship. So it says in verse 4, his children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are like sharp swords, are sharp swords. One commentator says on these verses that the fiercest of beasts, the most devouring of elements, and the sharpest of military weapons are selected here to represent the power and fury of David's enemies. Yet David is steadfast to hope that the Lord will deliver him and the Lord will save him. And look at the result in verse 6. It says, They have set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. But they have fallen into it themselves. His enemies that surrounded him were ultimately devoured. They fell into the pit that they dug for David himself. God promised David that he would be king. And David trusted in God's word. He wasn't going to waver that the Lord was going to fulfill his purposes. So he knew his enemies would be crushed. And if you look at the end of verse 3, the very means which God saves David and saves us, the very agents which accomplish his purposes, it says it's through his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's going to send it out to find us. His steadfast love and faithfulness is like the search party that suspends all its resources at no expense to make sure it hits us dead on, to make sure we're found. And if verse 3 explains how we're going to be found by his steadfast love and faithfulness, he, he even goes into further detail of the scope of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. If you look at verse 10, it says, For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. David's exclaiming, God has unlimited resources, love and faithfulness that are infinite to the heavens. This is the Lord that I can trust for deliverance in the midst of my trials. As you already know, we as Christians, we're not promised a pain-free life or trial-free life, especially on this earth. But we are promised that one day in the next life, we will ultimately be delivered from all the trials we face. We're told that those who have turned from their sins and have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, his righteousness has been placed on us. And more than just having Jesus' perfect righteousness before God on the day of judgment, we're told that Jesus' life will grant us to being with God forever, with new bodies and a renewed earth. Hope for heaven changes everything. Listen to how our lives will look on that final day when we're with Jesus for good. This is Revelation 21. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. May we set our 
eyes and counsel one another, set one another's eyes on this final day when we will be with Jesus forever, when our faith will be sight, when trials and suffering will be no more. Know that this is a certainty. He will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness to deliver us. But in the meantime, as we wait on this side of heaven, I think this text is calling us to praise the Lord. And that's the third point. We have a reason to praise in the midst of trials. What I love is David, he doesn't wait to leave the cave to praise God. He doesn't wait until he has a pain-free life or takes his throne as king to start singing praises to God. But as our title tells us, he's in the midst of the cave. He is in his trial right now as he's writing Psalm 57. His circumstances have not changed. He's still on the run for his life, and he will be for many more years to come after he wrote this. Yet listen to this again, verse 7 and 8. He says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. You see the difference between verse 3 and verse 7 and 8? We're told that God is going to send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. He will save me. He will send out his steadfast love. He will send out his faithfulness. And David says what we're supposed to do is we are supposed to send out our singing, our praises of God. I will sing and make melody. I will awake the dawn. I love the thought uh, of, of David just singing in this cave. And his voice is just bouncing off the walls for everyone to hear. The echo of his praise resounding in his ears and those he was with. How, how it would instruct even his own heart as he sung and then could hear his echo come back to him that God is worthy to be praised. And how it would instruct those he was with as he sung and they saw him suffering, that God is worthy to be praised. Praise is louder in the midst of trials. I know you've seen this even here at Cornerstone when people suffer and they praise God and it just amazes you. How could you praise God in the midst of, of suffering? It seems that it just puts it on display in a new way. We don't hush our voices when we're suffering. We cry out louder. God, we need you. God, you alone are worthy of praise. God, you alone are great and faithful and lovely. God, you alone are good when nothing else is. Lord, you alone can deliver when, when no one else stood by my side. Your purposes alone can stand. We don't sing on Sundays only when we're feeling good about it. Oftentimes, that's not the case for me. Oftentimes, I come on Sunday mornings and I sing because most of the time I'm not feeling it. But I sing because God is worthy of my praise. God is worthy of our praise together. And as I sing and I join my voice with you, it instructs my heart. So by the end of our time of singing, most of the time I am happy in the Lord. Maybe singing on Sundays is foreign to you. It feels strange to you. I encourage you, sing loud praises to the Lord. It instructs you. It also instructs others. The psalm, it counsels us today. We shouldn't look inward to fix our problems. 
But instead, we're counseled to look up, to look to God. Praise gets our eyes off ourself and on to God. Look at verse 9. David says, He's going to give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. I think this week, we should seek to praise the Lord, even in the midst of our trials. Be thankful for his goodness to us. Some ways, just practically, to help you do this, I would encourage you to track God's providence in your life so you can give him glory. First, I would, I would encourage you to track God's providence in your salvation and even tell someone about it. Who told you the gospel? How did, how did you hear about the message of salvation? What occurrences led to you knowing and savoring Christ? What parents did God give you? What friends did the Lord put in your path that you heard this message? Think about it. Trace it and rejoice in it. I love hearing stories of God's providence in salvation. I think it allows us to praise his name. I was reading even this week of a man's testimony. How can you not be amazed at a story like this? I want to read you this man's story of him recounting the way the Lord saved him. And as you hear it, think about, these aren't just lucky circumstances. This is God providentially planning his way. It says, on January 6th, a 15-year-old man wandered into a Methodist chapel in England. A snowstorm prevented him from attending church with his father that morning, so he took cover inside this little chapel as he was passing by. Apparently, the snow was so severe that day that the pastor himself of this little Methodist church didn't even show up. Since there was no pastor in sight, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor by trade, decided he was going to get up and preach the sermon that day. I don't recommend that. He opened his Bible to Isaiah 45:22 and read it aloud. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. After a few-minute exhortation on these verses, the stand-in preacher ran out of things to say. The sermon lasted 10 minutes. During this 10-minute sermon, the preacher made eye contact with the 15-year-old boy who wandered in off the streets and told him he looked miserable in his sin, and he needed to trust in Christ to be saved. The young man who trusted in Christ that morning was Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century. God knows no inconveniences, only plans. Not a snowflake that day fell to the ground without God's hand telling it to fall. Not a word was spoken by that tailor without God planning it to happen. No person accidentally comes to Christ. What seems inconvenient or happenstance to us is not the case. God plans it all. The same is true for your salvation, and we get the joy of praising the Lord for that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. It's God's providence that you're here right now. I hope you can see that. It's his hand who guided you here to this place. And there's an invitation this morning to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, and praise God with your life. Second, I would encourage you, even this week, to write down, to trace uh, ways God has been providentially caring for you in your life in a journal. Maybe it's a note on your phone. I forget things so easily. 
I think having a small journal or just a note open on your phone, it allows for quick and easy access just to jot something small down that may seem like happenstance, but it's God's ways of caring for you. And I think as we write down our prayers, it allows us to see that God answers us when we call to him. When we write down our circumstances, it allows us to trace how God is faithful to the promises of Scripture to you. As we write down our trials, it allows us to see how the Lord's hand sustains or comforts us. I love what John Flavel says. He says, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can be read only backwards. So as we write things down and, and we look back, may it give us a greater trust in the future in the midst of our trials. Regardless of where you are today, maybe you're prospering, maybe you're suffering, maybe you see his purposes unfolding, or maybe it's blind to you right now. Let us join in with our voices and say in verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let me pray. Lord, we cry to you for mercy because we have nowhere else to go. We trust in you alone. Thank you, Lord, that you tell us your purposes will be fulfilled for us. I pray for anyone suffering here today that your purposes are not revealed, that they can't see right now. It feels like maybe they're in the darkness. Lord, would you reveal your kindness to them, your steadfast love and faithfulness to them, that they may see some of your purposes in their trial. Lord, we pray that you alone would be exalted above the heavens. Your glory would fill the earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.